This morning, I invite you to turn to the Word of God with me as we find it in the Gospel of John, the Gospel according to John, chapter 4. The Gospel according to John, chapter 4. In um, the next few weeks, we hope to pay some attention to how our Lord Jesus interacted with women. And later on this year, we will, um, Lord willing, spend time working through the book of Esther. And um, so this is a kind of a counterpoint, a New Testament counterpoint, if you will, to that Old Testament book. We're going to read chapter 4, um, the verses uh, 1 through 42. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father was seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing, that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, the one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We're going to focus this morning on the first half of that narrative, um, verses 4 through 14. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever taken public transport and been spoken to by a stranger? Maybe you were taking the train into Perth and someone tried to strike up a conversation with you. Or maybe you were on the bus. It can be a little bit unnerving sometimes. There's all sorts of people out there. Many of them are lonely A few are a little desperate. Some might have bad intentions. And then there's always one or two that are unhinged. So you never really know what you're getting into when somebody, a stranger, strikes up a conversation with you. You have no control over how long it will take or what they will talk about. And it's even worse on an airplane because then you don't, only have to sit beside a stranger, but you often have to sleep beside them. And if the conversation goes pear-shaped, if it doesn't go well, then you have no way of escape. So 
This whole idea of being spoken to by strangers is quite unappealing, isn't it? It's not the sort of thing that um, we would actively seek out. Yet this morning we read from John chapter 4. Our Savior is on his way to Jerusalem. He stops at a well in Samaria. He encounters a strange woman and he strikes up a conversation with her. He's a stranger, a man speaking to a woman when no one else is around. Why did he do that? Well, we'll see that it is because at the well in Samaria, the Savior shows his great love for the lost. And we'll see that that love becomes apparent when we consider the person to whom he speaks and the promise that he makes. So keep your Bibles open. We're going to go through this passage together, starting in verse 4 here, where it says that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you were a Jewish person reading this story for the first time or hearing it, this is a loaded statement. Jews did not like Samaritans because the Samaritans were people who were not orthodox in their beliefs. That is to say, they were people who originally came from a Jewish background but now had different beliefs than the rest of the Jews. And some of you might be able to relate to that. Maybe you have um, family members or, or friends that used to share the same beliefs as you did, and now they believe something quite different, and maybe you found that difficult. And so you can appreciate the friction that would have existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. The interesting thing is that the Samaritans did not consider themselves to be part of the problem. They viewed themselves as God's faithful people. In fact, you can see in verse 20 that the, the woman refers to this mountain. What mountain is that? Um, it was actually part of one of the biggest differences between Jews and Samaritans. The Samaritans worshipped at Mount Gerizim. The Jews worshipped at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And Mount Gerizim was near Shiloh, where, if you remember the Samuel story, the ark was initially set up. You might remember from our series on the first book of Samuel a few years ago that um, the ark was eventually captured by the Philistines and Shiloh was destroyed. And the ark never came back to Shiloh. It was put in Kirith Jairim, which was further south, and then eventually it went even further south when David, King David, brought the ark to Jerusalem. So the Samaritans said, well, obviously it doesn't belong in Jerusalem. You should have left it where it was. You're the ones who changed everything. We're the ones who stayed the same. We're the ones who remained faithful. They also rejected every part of the Old Testament that came after the first five books of Moses. So you could say that these people had stopped along the road that led to the Messiah. But the Jews, on the other hand, refused to recognize them as their religious equals, or even as Israelites, and there was a reason for that too, because in 722 BC, so about seven centuries before this whole conversation, the king of Assyria had come into the northern part of Israel, and he had deported all of these people, including many Samaritans, and replaced them with heathens from other countries. And so those heathens lived there, and they, they um, intermingled, they married the people that still remained, and then when the exiles came back, from um, um, being deported, then some of them ended up marrying these uh, heathens as well. So um, there was intermarriage. The Jews didn't even 
recognized them as, as true Israelites, and that hostility went both ways, which is actually why verse 9 is quite funny. If, uh, it's amusing if you're in the know about this. As you are now, it says that the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then it says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, which is actually quite amusing because um, that went both ways. Samaritans definitely had no dealings with Jews either. So it's, it's ironic. And um, there's a collection of rabbinic teachings that reflects the belief that the Jewish people would have had at that time. And this collection is called the Mishnah. So if you want to understand how the Jewish rabbis thought, you need to read the Mishnah. And the Mishnah says, when it comes to observing the law, you can trust Samaritans in some things, but not in other things. Especially not when it comes, when it came to how they dealt with a woman's monthly cycle. There's a whole little paragraph in the Mishnah about that. You see, in Leviticus 15 verse 19, the law said, when the woman's monthly cycle begins, then the woman is unclean for seven days, Everything she touches will be unclean as well. And if you touch something that she touches, then you're unclean until the evening. And that matters because people that are unclean could not go to the tabernacle or the temple. God was using these rules of clean and unclean to teach his people that he was holy. So the Mishnah taught that the Samaritans counted the onset of that monthly cycle slightly differently from how the Jews counted it. So an observant Jewish man would never have shared a cup with a Samaritan because you never know when the Samaritan woman is unclean. She might be unclean. In fact, a Jewish man would consider a Samaritan woman to be unclean all the time, just to be safe. The Mishnah even says, and this is a quote, Samaritan women are considered as menstruants from their cradle. So it's a deep sense of prejudice that they had against these people, and they'd had that for centuries. So this is a background. Now think about that. With that background in mind, Jesus comes walking onto the scene. He's traveling, and he sits down at this well. And that alone already should make us sit up and pay attention, because think about all the other times in the Bible when someone comes and sits down by a well. Genesis 24, Abraham's servant meets Rebekah, who waters his camels, and he takes her home to marry Isaac. Genesis 29, Jacob sees Rachel at the well and waters her sheep, and later on, they get married as well. Exodus chapter 2, Moses drives away the shepherds and waters Jethro's flock, and eventually he marries Jethro's daughter. So when you read the word well and someone sits down by a well, what do you, what's in the back of your mind? Well, the well is where the hero goes to find a bride. Now, this is not as far out as it sounds, because remember, the relationship between God and his people is often portrayed as a relationship between a bride and a groom. In the Old Testament, we have Ezekiel 16 and Hosea chapter 2. In the New Testament, we have um, Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 27, and many of you would be familiar with that passage. The, the relationship between husband and wife is compared to the relationship between Christ and the church. So, with that in mind, you turn back to the story, and we don't, we don't want to allegorize the story, okay? We don't want to say uh, allegories when you say that every part of the story actually refers to something different, right? And uh, this story is not um, primarily a story about Christ and his church, which just happens to um, 
be, um, ha have a well as a setting. Like this, this is a historical event which is uh, being described to us, but the, it is a historical event with a literary echo. We see Christ gathering his church, and it's very personal. He doesn't just offer salvation to people in a general sense. The, the call to the gospel is universal, of course, but it's not as if he leaves it up to these people to decide whether they will come or not. Jesus seeks out specific people at specific times. The Canons of Dort, chapter 1, article 7, reflects scripture on this point when it says, God decreed to give to Christ those who were to be saved and effectually to call and draw them into his communion through his word and spirit. That's what's happening here. Christ is coming to this woman and he's calling her to faith in him. She's being called. Christ, the heavenly groom, is gathering his bride at this well. But whatever else she might be, she's not a fresh-faced maiden. She comes to the well in the middle of the day, alone. In the culture of the day, you normally get water in the evening or maybe morning. And um, you make sure that you go at the same time as all the other women do. It's a social event. But this woman picked the hottest part of the day to come, so she wants to be sure that she's completely alone. She's obviously someone who's ostracized by her community, someone who is um, excluded by her community. And as the conversation develops, it's clear that there are reasons for that. There's, there are red flags all over this conversation. This woman has an aura of failure about her. But interestingly, there's nothing here that indicates she's waiting for someone to rescue her. She's not waiting for someone to rescue her. She's very free in her conversation with Jesus. She's not demure. She's not some kind of wallflower. You compare that with Genesis 24 when Abram's servant stops at a well hoping to find a bride for Isaac. He sees Rebekah and we, we read that the servant ran to meet her and he said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she says, drink my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. This man came with a lot of camels and camels drink a lot of water. Well, this woman has a very different reaction. So you think of Rebecca saying, Drink, my Lord, and I will draw water for your camels. And the Samaritan woman says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? You see the contrast? And at the end of the conversation, she puts, she puts down her jug and runs back to the village, and Jesus still hasn't had his drink Bear in mind that in the previous chapter, chapter 3, Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus who came at night. Nicodemus was very cautious about being seen with Jesus, and he was very respectful when he spoke. But this woman has nothing to lose. So she just speaks her mind, and all comes out. She's not at all apologetic about being a Samaritan. In fact, in verse 12, she even seems to mock him. She says, living water, huh? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. There's a little bit of mockery here because she refers to our father Jacob. She's, she's reminding him, hey, remember, we Samaritans, we didn't change. You guys were the ones who changed. 
Our father was Jacob. He left us this this well. So there's a little jab there. She doesn't consider herself to be lost in any way. She's certainly not waiting for someone to come and rescue her. But you notice that Jesus does not respond in kind to this. He doesn't subtly try to put her back in her place. He doesn't try to fit her in a mold. He doesn't put her in a box. He doesn't regard her through the lens of culture and prejudice. Her main problem is not that she's a Samaritan or a woman or that she's obviously had a messy life. Her main problem is that she doesn't know Jesus. She doesn't know God. She's lost, spiritually lost. And that's what she had in common with Nicodemus. Very interesting. Hey, these two people in chapters 3 and 4, and if you haven't read chapter 3 recently, go back and read it when you're at home. But you see Nicodemus in chapter 3, he's a man. He's highly educated. He's powerful. He's at the peak of his career. He's well-connected, and then you have this woman who's the opposite of all of that. But Jesus didn't restrict his gospel to just the elite. His love is for the lost, no matter where they come from. And at that well in Samaria, the Savior shows his great love for the lost. He shows that by speaking to her. Now, you have to understand that the very fact that he spoke to her in the first place is really unusual, There's another collection of rabbinic material based on the Mishnah, which is called the Talmud, and there were two versions of that, one uh, that came um, out of Babylonia in the exile and the other out of Jerusalem. So the one from Babylonia was called the Babylonian Talmud. And the Babylonian Talmud said that a sage, a wise person, like a rabbi, quote, should not converse with a woman in the marketplace, end quote. And some of you might say, well, what what if it's his wife or his sister or his daughter? And the Talmud says, no, no, no. You can't even speak to them then. Why not? Because someone else might see you speaking to the woman and get the wrong idea. They might not know that you're related. A rabbi wouldn't risk the possible loss of his reputation just to speak to a woman for any reason at all. And that explains verse 27. His disciples come and they're like, what? What are you doing? You're speaking to a woman. So in this conversation, what is Jesus doing? He is making himself vulnerable on purpose. The narrative makes it really clear in verse 8. It says, uh, it reminds us the disciples had gone away to buy food. That really wants the reader as well to know, look, he was alone with this woman. This is, he's in a vulnerable position here in terms of his reputation. But that doesn't matter to him. He's far more concerned with showing his love to the lost. And we're quite different that way, aren't we? We'd, we'd probably be willing to humble ourselves, but only if everybody knew who we really are. There was a story told once of a man in a Dutch community during the Second World War. Everybody thought that he was a Nazi collaborator, so they all despised him. And then after the war was over, it turned out that all this time he'd been pretending to be a Nazi. He was actually working against them. He was on the side of the Allies. Can you imagine how difficult it would have been for this man to hear people that he knew rebuke him when he knew that they were wrong? How many of us could have put up with that? 
You'd really have to love your country to be able to endure that sort of a situation. Now imagine how much more Christ humbled himself to find the lost. He's misunderstood by everyone. This woman calls him a Jew later on in the gospel. The Jews call him a Samaritan. So people on both sides are distancing themselves from him. But he continued his work of seeking and saving the lost. Does that not show his great love also in our lives? In Lord's Day 21 of the Catechism, we confess that the Son of God out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself in the unity of the true faith, by spirit and word, a church chosen to everlasting life. Every time that the gospel is preached to you, Christ is gathering his church. He's calling you. He's extending his love to you. That's a gospel held out even to those who are often disobedient and contrary. So does our heart reflect that same love? Are we willing to approach others in humility as well? Or does that matter more what people think of us? And if that is the case, does that ever get in the way of our Christian witness? Remember the words of Peter in his first letter when he says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Are we prepared to do that? It can be difficult to show love to others by sharing the gospel with them. It's difficult to think on our feet. So often um, we can practice by thinking through situations. Any situation that you're in with an unbeliever, any interaction, you can think to yourself, um, how would it work if I, how could I introduce the gospel into this situation? What would be a natural way of making that transition? And if we try, and if it didn't go well, then don't give up, but learn from the experience and try afterwards again. Now, it's easier not to, of course, and there are people who say, well, the church doors are always open. They know where we are. If they want to hear the gospel, they can come to church, and of course, of course they can. That's true, but who's going to bring them? Who's going to bring them here? Why, why would they come here at all if no one ever talks to them about these things? And besides, even if they were to come, there's a good chance that very few people would even speak to them. It seems that here in Mundajong, it's always the same handful of people that speak to visitors. And it's wonderful that they do, but where are the rest of us? Is it possible that we're only willing to speak to a certain kind of person? And if that's so, are we really that different from the Jews in Jesus' days? We're to be guided by the love of Christ. At the well in Samaria, the Savior shows his great love for the lost. That love becomes apparent when we consider the person to whom he speaks. So let's not also pay attention to the promise that he makes. Look at verse 10. In verse 10 of our reading, Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. It says, if only you knew, if only you knew the gift of God. But the problem is that most people don't. Unless God opens their eyes, they never will. 
And so often if you invite an unbeliever to church, they'll say, no, nah, that's not for me, or I'm not into religion. People don't know. They have no idea what they are rejecting. And there's a reason for that. Scripture says that by nature, people are spiritually dead. Being spiritually dead means that you are unable to know God, unable to respond to the gospel. And the canons of Dort, drawing on Scripture, attribute this to original sin. It says, quote, All men are conceived in sin and are born as children of wrath, incapable of any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in sins and slaves of sin. And without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they neither will nor can return to God, reform their depraved nature, or prepare themselves for its reformation. And that's echoed in Titus 3, verse 3 to 7. Listen to this. Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's what human beings are like, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But, says Paul, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And that's what's happening here in this chapter as well. This is an example of the grace of God appearing to this woman at the well. Nothing that she can do or ever has done to merit this gift. She's not able to believe in him on her own. Jesus says, if only you knew the gift of God. What is a gift of God? Well, it is eternal life. But eternal life does not mean that you continue to live forever in your current state. No, eternal life is to know God as he revealed himself through Jesus Christ and to live in communion with him forever. That's reflected in the phrase living water in our passage. That, that, um, that echoes Jeremiah 2 verse 13. In Jeremiah 2 verse 13 God is speaking to his people. He says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A cistern is a, is a holding tank for water, like uh, some, many of you have rainwater tanks. Um, that's a type of cistern, but it's made out of, what are they made out of, plastic or poly or something like that. So a cistern is built out of stone to hold water, and often in um, that time, the cisterns would... Well, they would crack, and uh, the water would be stale. And so Jesus is saying, drawing on this Old Testament imagery, he's saying, God can give you living water. God calls himself a fountain, an inexhaustible spring of life-giving water. What do you get when you turn away from him? He says, you have broken cisterns. If your tank springs a leak and all your rainwater drains out, then you have a problem. You can, you can get it fixed and have more water delivered. They couldn't do that. So the gift of life is communion with him, inexhaustible communion that never runs out. And it's the greatest gift that anyone could ever have. But do we see it that way? The gift is only meaningful if it fills a true need. That if someone gives you... Um, 
If you're trying to open a can of Coke and someone gives you a can opener and says, here, you can keep it, that's not, that doesn't meet the need in the moment, right? That's not a helpful gift. A gift is only meaningful if you see your need and if you, if you want it then. then the only then can you understand what the gift is. And this is why people don't, don't know who God is. They don't know that they need God because by nature they're spiritually dead and they, they can't accept they don't, they don't see the use of this. But if people don't need God, why are one in seven Australians on an antidepressant? Did you know that? It was a story in the Australian uh, about a month ago that said one in seven Australians is on an antidepressant. You think about it. We're the, we're the lucky country. We've always been known as the lucky country. Australia is the lucky country with one of the highest standards of living in the world. And yet, one in seven Australians is on an antidepressant. And several times this past summer, when I went on walks, we came to a scenic viewpoint with a cliff overlooking the water. And uh, on at least two occasions, I saw a number on a sign or painted on a rock. Call this number if you're contemplating suicide. So, maybe we're not doing so well after all. If only you knew, says Jesus. The only way you can receive the gift is through faith. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is what it means to drink the water of life, is to believe to respond to his promises with faith. And the promise is for you as well. Whoever drinks from this water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The reference to water is a promise of life and communion with God, mediated through the Holy Spirit. It begins in this life, it continues forever. All you need to do is drink that is, to respond with faith to what Jesus says. And yes, that faith is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It does not come from us, but he uses the preaching of the gospel to work that faith in us. And so the call of the gospel is always repent and believe. You don't know if only you knew. And that promises you will be utterly transformed if you do. So... Has this gift transformed your life, dear brothers and sisters? Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So the relationship that we have with God through faith overflows into every other part of life. It's something that refreshes other people, that the, the water flows out to other people, so to speak. There's blessings that come from you to other people when you have saving faith in Christ. Do you feel like a spring of water welling up to eternal life? Do you? Do you feel like a spring of water welling up to eternal life? Is that true in your life? Many Christians, if you ask them, would say, well, no. There's not much joy in their lives. They're not that interested in discussing questions of faith. They know that they should take more initiative in their spiritual life, but they just can't seem to motivate themselves. Why not? 
Well, there could be different reasons for that. But one of them is worldliness. One of Paul's co-workers fell for that. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, he writes, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, supposedly Christian, one of Paul's co-workers, fell in love with this world, deserted him, went to Thessalonica, sin city, the Las Vegas of his days. Oh, how many Demases are in the church today? And others have divided loyalties. They're happy to be part of a Christian community as long as they can hold on to everything else as well. Jesus warned the Pharisees about that. He said, look, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. But you can't have it both ways, he says. He cannot serve God and money. The problem is not having money but loving money. And here's the test. Would you be able to walk away from it all if you had to? Maybe the answer is no. I couldn't. And then our passage is a call to repent because you've strayed. But the promise still stands. The promise always has. The Savior's great love is for you as well. You need daily communion with him. Daily communion. And as you live in that communion, as you grow in sanctification, all that hinders the flow of that fountain will be taken away. And you will never be thirsty again. Amen.